with something worth imparting. We're looking, uh, beginning our, our, our um, series today on saints, the actual name of it, as in the very nice graphics that have been produced by Angela, uh, all saints for all souls. Um, Anglicans and saints have an interesting, a long relationship, but one that is not without its degree of of vexation, and we still inhabit a kind of another world, if you like, as we enter. We have been given, I have been given, uh, one saint today. Uh, This is St. George. Uh, It's an iteration of him, not by an English person, because most English churches are not blessed with abundant uh, evidence of the saints. We don't have uh, any more statues. We don't have much in the way of stained glass. Since the Reformation, uh, this one is actually in uh, the border of Germany and Czechoslovakia in a little church which is uh, a source for us of how to handle our saint today. Our saint for today is St. George. And in English iconography, this is a more typical way of representing him. The crusader knight, if you like, who really began his career with us under the auspices of the Emperor Diocletian. After that, uh, much is known of him, and very little of what is known can be determined to be true. Like many saints, um, the strength he offers is not so much in the historicity of what he did, but if you like, in the power of what he represented. And with St. George especially, a lot of the layers that make him so uh, appealing to the English people, as he very much is, uh, were added uh, over millennia, a millennium rather than over a lifetime. But before we venture further, and if you have at home or somewhere in possession or in your mind the little red book that we have printed at great... um, Cost, uh, which is the 39 Articles of Religion, you will turn to Article 22 and you will find the first note as to how we are to proceed when we in the Anglican world discuss saints. And I read to you because it's contrast is rather poor. I wanted it to be a real picture. If you want a little red book, by the way, not Mao's, but that of uh, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth I in 1571, um, There are many of them, and I'd be happy if you would take them away. We do, they are, the Red Book is our guide, believe it or not. Our goal is to interpret scripture through the lens of the Catechism and the 39 Articles, but bringing it very much to life in terms of people's experience, which means you may not hear these articles referred to often. They're always there at the back of our mind. Any clergy who are ordained in the Anglican Church, I was ordained in the Anglican Church of Canada, are required to swear assent to the 39 Articles. So that can be very interesting. And Article 22 will tell you why. Of purgatory, and I read, the Romish, that would be Roman Catholic, our sister church, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshiping, and adoration, as well of images as of relics, and also invocation of saints is a fond thing 
vainly invented and grounded upon no warrant of scripture, no warranty of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. Um, I think you can discern a certain attitude in this article toward a whole number of things uh, with which we occasionally engage here. Fond does not mean tender-hearted. It means rather uh, weak-hearted, I guess. A fond thing vainly invented leading to nothing, in other words. It will lead us to nothing if we invoke the saints. I'm going to leave purgatory off the table at the moment, as well as pardons, worshiping, and adoration. What they're talking about is the effort to sort of transcend the distance, if you like, the ontological distance between we who are, in some sense, alive, we have a pulse, and we walk following Jesus, and those who I always say have gone ahead of us on the path home. If they've gone ahead of us, they are the ones who were before us in time, and they're not left dead by the side of the road. As we journey to the same destination, all of those who went on in faith should always be in our view, helping us to triangulate our bead on Jesus, often helping us a great deal, at other times leading us into some very interesting byways, but nonetheless part of our sense of who we are, our sense of community. And the beauty of Anglicanism is in this generous but discerning way in which this church, since the Reformation, still extended her arm out through time to claim the beginning, the church at the beginning, we still claim that our ordinations are in apostolic succession to that of Peter himself. Our sister church has a different point of view, but we can argue that the the transition is unbroken. And with that, we like to generously claim whatever it pleases us from time to time to please from that great big treasure house of the past. I view tradition as those great big boxes that you see in restaurants or in the dentist full of little rewards for your children that they may go in and rifle one or two things of value and take them home. Uh, So we approach tradition creatively, but not without a sense of where the treasures in that box have come from. What the reformers are saying and the Diocese of Quincy requires affirmation of the 39 articles as well. Of all her priests, go figure, and we'll work on that. What this says to those of us who then proceed to try to define who the saints are and in what way we are to have a relationship with them. How do we relate to them? As dead people back there, I guess. As not-so-dead people alive ahead of us, yes. As people with an identity as people who we can know something about ahead of us, absolutely. As people who we invoke, which would mean to whom we would pray, that gets tricky. If you've ever done the Stations of the Cross in this church, you will come to Station 13. And you will read, and these were written by the Bishop of Salisbury, David Stancliffe, who is the author of our liturgy, Common Worship, and I quote, Jesus is laid in his mother's arms. Mary, mother of Christ. Who is being invoked in this prayer? Mary, the mother of Christ. You held in your arms once again the Savior of the world, etc., etc. So we look at the matter of invocation 
And then we look at the purpose of it. For what purpose are we inviting the saints to pray for the purpose of intercession? I put this to Alan Jacobs when he was the one to take all the difficult questions and guide us through. And he said to me, I ask you to pray for me, don't you? Why can't you ask somebody else to pray for you? Do we know exactly what on earth they're doing up there in the Revelation underneath that altar? They're certainly praising. Wouldn't that be called prayer? I hear you. And following the Anglican principle that only what is forbidden in Scripture is not to be uh, enjoined by us, but what is uh, not specifically forbidden is not uh, therefore put off limits for us. We can get ourselves into a lot of mischief, but that is the difference between the Anglican and the Reformed uh, view of things. We don't just do what Scripture prescribes. We feel free to do what Scripture permits by virtue of Scripture's silence. Is Scripture silent on the issue of the saints? Difficult question, seeing most of them were still active when what we call Scripture was being put together. But we'll pursue that as a series of open questions. So we start with some definitions, and we will get to St. George. A saint, what do we define? This is the Oxford English Dictionary, so we start with it. The broad common grace definition, a saint is a very virtuous, kind, or patient person. That would leave me out on all counts. (laughs) (laughs) To say nothing of trying to go beyond, but go beyond we do. And so does the OED. Saint, a person acknowledged as holy or virtuous, yeah, we did that, and typically regarded as being in heaven after death. Okay, now we invoke N.T. Wright to say, wait a minute, where are we going? When will we get there? Heaven is not the end of the story, as Wright tells us. The story ends right back here on earth. Okay, he's a bishop and an Anglican one. So we accept his view of scripture. (laughs) Formally recognized or canonized by the church after death. This is tricky. The church that we are in is a little hesitant to make saints. Um, At the time of the Reformation, in which there were many saints, they were all literally stripped out of the calendar. They were observed, some of the old ones, St. Lucy and St. Agatha, St. Giles were kept in. But the only saints who were granted feasts in the prayer book of 1549, 5262, still in force in most Anglican countries, are ones who occur in the Bible. We only, and only the New Testament at that. So when we were doing our red letter days here, we were confined to St. Matthew, St. Andrew, St. Luke, the Annunciation, you know, the conversion of St. Paul. St. Michael and all angels, yes, because they do occur in the New Testament right at the end. Everybody else, no. Not even St. George was granted an order of service in the prayer book. And in the litany of 1544, which is one of the first pieces of work that Cranmer did for the church in the process of being reformed, that was made clear that all those saints that used to make up the beautiful litany of saints, the one that we do here on uh, all, all souls, 
which is the one that comes from the new common worship, the one we do at dawn on Easter Day, which is a translation of a 13th century medieval one, which had wide currency, are simply lists. I was going to do the litany today, uh, but it's an interesting piece of literature in liturgy in that it is an utterly non-transformative piece of liturgy. It's purely a list. It could go on and on, and in fact it does. Every year we're adding more people. Every year the church is also taking people away. St. George, who was a saint of the Roman Catholic Church, was removed in 1963, then put back in 1970 by popular demand. You'll look for St. Joan of Arc with great difficulty. The one saint whose day we observe here faithfully, St. Francis, by moving his feast to a Sunday, is only granted a much lesser status in the Catholic Church itself. And so it goes. So they're recognized, they're canonized. One point about canonization. We honor people like Martin Luther King, and so we should. But if you're to be made a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, you need signs of supernatural power working through you. You have to have done miracles. If you have not done miracles as upstanding and virtuous and holy as your life may be, you will never be canonized in the Roman Catholic Church. You're not a saint. So we have a little difference there. It's part of our attempt to sneak up, if you like, on uh, Article 22 in our own way. And it opens us up again at the very end of it all to say, well, First of all, who is a saint? I'm no saint, which is what we often say. And then what we immediately say, which is, we are indeed all saints if we have been set aside, consecrated to the service of the Lord Jesus. In the immortal words, however, from The Incredibles, Alan Jacobs' favorite movie, (laughs) if everybody's special, that means nobody is. If everybody's special, that means nobody. Nobody is. So that's just something to bear in mind as I plow forward. Now, we're talking about a saint who is not just a saint, but a patron saint, the patron saint of England, and we'll get to that. What is a patron? Very, very briefly, a patron. I mean, the whole economy of the ancient Near East and of the Anglo-Saxon countries who heavily influenced the shape of our liturgy one way or the other, was based on a system of patrons and clients. That was the basis of the economic system. And your patron might be the feudal lord, might be the emperor, you keep going up the level. But a patron owes protection to his clients, the client owes obedience to their patron. You watch Downton Abbey, where we have the continuation of the feudal system, the lord of the manor, understands that he is required to extend protection to his servants, to the people that work his land. If a farm fails or a servant loses their job, he goes through agony to try to find a way to preserve their living. The servants, by the same token, are understood to owe to the patron, to the lord of the manor, whatever that person requires of them. Unquestioning obedience. It's based on trust and a very personal relationship, if you like. And when we talk as evangelicals, evangelicals, I wish, hey, we need a new word for one that has actually become utterly useless and debased. So we will use that, evangelicals. <laughs> All right, said it here. Um, 
<laughs> we talk about this person-to-person relationship with Jesus. Lord doesn't usually enter into it. He's usually our buddy, a bit like Santa Claus. We pull him out of our pocket and flip to a friendly verse that we can use so he can get us through our next piece of difficulty. And that's fine. He's happy to do this. However, there is also a sense of a power differential inherent in our personal relationship with our Lord, which we do well not to lose sight of. It's what makes the whole thing interesting. So a patron is one who handles power. The patron gives financial or other support to a person, organization, cause, or activity. In Roman history, it was patrician in relation to a client. In the British system, it was a person or institution with the right to grant a benefice to a member of the clergy. Very nice. And it can also be short for patron saint. A little guide here to how we work through this from a semiotician called Grema. We're not going to go totally into it, but this is something N.T. Wright uses, you will find, for his analysis of the dynamics of scripture. It's the basis of a kind of pattern by which narratives are put together, a kind of narrative grammar or syntax, always shifting. And the circles are representing what are called actants. We won't go too much into this, or I will get hopelessly lost. And they are not persons in the drama, but they're things that people do. So the archetypal drama begins with a sender who is trying to give something to a receiver. It's the covenant pattern, if you like. I will be your God, you will be my people, in which God is trying to give his grace to those who uh, receive it. And in turn, we give our praise and worship back to God. We keep switching places. So the top level is the level at which things actually happen. The object itself is pulled out of the game. It always is is the case that in any narrative worth telling, you start with the disruption of that pattern. We can't continue performing our covenant requirement. We're back in the garden. We sin. Everything falls apart. So God needs to do something, if he is a gracious God, as he does, to appoint someone who would be a subject to do the work of providing the grace that we cannot put into flow. So on the axis of power or ability underneath, uh, the subject, stranded as he is between a helper a benevolent source of that power, and an opponent at the other end uh, has to negotiate through various tests or trials, and this is where all the heroic journeys are, are fought out, to get back in the game and put that object into play and make sure that the receiver receives it. Very simple, but it's worth keeping in mind. When we try to plant the saints on this, we put them with H-E, or helper, And we want to keep in mind that the saints work on the axis of power. Their job is to empower us to provide by their power something we can't do ourselves, understood in this way. They're not just an example stuck on a pedestal to which we're supposed to strive with all our might, do our best, God will do the rest, and somehow we'll kind of measure up or not with these guys. They're more than a model, they're more than an example. So going into dangerous area already. Patron saint is responsible, is the protecting or guiding saint of a person or place. Two things I like to use a lot when I am even interceding for people myself. Guarding and guiding, if you like. The left and the right brain. The right brain is always 
on the watch, looking out, open-minded for anything that might come, for the shadow of a hawk to come and look at me for its supper. The guiding eye is looking through the stones and the gravel for those little seeds which will provide my supper. How do you do both? You have to do both to stay alive. The patron saint, therefore, is there to help keep watch over you while you sleep, if you like, and also to lead you into the fray to take great risks and do great things for God when the time is right. So we're adding a lot to the work. Here's St. George in Tbilisi in Georgia, so-called, after him. Yes, yeah. Can I interrupt? Yeah, oh yeah, interrupt. Question. Yeah, say, say, so you say use, them. you use that guarding and guiding, you used that this morning. Right. Talking about the work of the Spirit. Right. So is that, prob- is that tension problematic, right? If you think of the Holy Spirit as our source of guarding and guidance, does, is that part of the if, As we think of the Holy Spirit as the source of guidance, which we will do anything to run away from at every possible occasion. Absolutely. <laughs> it's very problematic. However, to reverse it, it's tricky to say where the Holy Spirit is at work and where the Holy Spirit isn't. We have to do that. We have to, to use discernment. So in this case, the church said, whatever the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives, I mean, gee, they believed enough in what they believed to give up their lives and shed blood before Diocletian or Domitian or whoever, but we're still not sure they really had the Holy Spirit in them because, after all, we're the first Christians, so we're going to kind of just put them at arm's length. Now, the question being, I'm being a little facetious because they were very, they agonized over this. Their point of view at the Reformation was, are they active as, as a mediator? In other words, and, and how many channels can the Holy Spirit work through at any given time? Your question implicitly, I think, is ought we not to go there directly, which was indeed the, the, um, the Reformation concern. It was even the reason they really didn't want paintings anymore and stained glass. They were really not that worried about idolatry, plain and simple. But they had a Bible. They were teaching people how to read it. And they felt if you can go to the Word itself, you can arguably plug more into the Holy Spirit, you know, 220 volts, than if you're just trying to get it 12 volts through these saints. Yes and no. And we'll leave that tantalizingly hanging. (laughs) So there's your spirit. There's your saint on a big pillar where no one can touch him. St. George riding over Georgia. I mean, over there, Georgia. He's down in Georgia, too, I imagine. Do we want him up there? This is the big cathedral in Stockholm, which is also consecrated to St. George. Um, Or do we want the saint working in the middle of our lives? When we invoke the saint, do we want him jumping right into the fray as this lovely statue? There's the dragon. We'll get to the dragon. There's the maiden in distress. We'll get to all that. What you think does that have to do with Diocletian and swearing that you believe in Christ? Well, we'll figure that out too. Invocation, and then we're going to go on with the history, which is relatively brief. This will kind of set up the struggle for the for the year to come. The action of invoking something or someone for an assistance or as an authority, summoning of a deity or the supernatural, incantation used to invoke a deity or the supernatural, a form of words such as in the name of the Father, introducing a prayer, sermon, etc. These are all invocations. So, very nice definition. Um, 
Where do we put the saints? Father, Son, and Spirit, we shouldn't have a problem with. Deity, okay. But the summoning of the deity or the supernatural, we know even from the Bible that can get us into a host of difficulties. So, come on, guy, here we are. Here is an invocation. Battle of Agincourt, Agincourt, 1415, I think, Henry V, from Shakespeare, Henry V, invoking as he leads the troops into battle. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more follow your spirit and upon this charge cry, God for Harry, England, and St. George. So there we have St. George. As they say in chariots of fire, king, God, and country in that order. Uh, This is an invocation of an Englishman for help when facing battle. This, I think, was produced, I would say, in the 1930s by the look of it. Britain needs you at once. And there is King George with his dragon. So we'll get to the dragon. You're probably wondering, how did we send a bunch of paleo-ethnobiologists out to find the remnants of the dragon? They haven't even found St. George, although his tomb exists at least four or five places. But they're (laughs) looking for the dragon. So Pope Gelasius I says this. And then we're going to look a little bit at space, and we're going to look at St. George. George is among those whose names are rightly reverenced among us, but whose actions are known only to God. Okay, 494. He's a saint, great guy. We're going on that. So let's fill in the blanks. People like to do that. Okay, so this is the state of things at around that time, around the year 500. These are the dioceses, so-called by someone's reckoning, of the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. And this, my finger is not, okay, now I'm getting it. Okay, these are the places that concern us in our little story. So, this is where George is born, or maybe here, but this is where we think he was. This is in Israel, um, born in the year 275 A.D. Nicomedia is where he died, maybe under the orders of of, uh, the emperor. This is Rome. Canterbury is up there, one of the diocesan centers of the ancient church. 500 is pretty ancient. It's just getting its feet again as the Roman Empire falls. But that whole zone is our zone in which St. George kind of finds his life. What is he doing at this time? This much people believe on. He's working in the Praetorian Guards. He is a soldier. He has somehow found faith, and he's put to the test for his faith. Now, in case you think St. George was alone among Romans who were put to the test for their faith, he was not. Almost every saint we're going to encounter suffered the same death, a martyr's death for not burning a pinch of incense to the emperor. The emperor Diocletian, Uh, That's him over his city of Spalato, or Split, in Yugoslavia, is the one who kills him. And um, 303, again, is the year they're agreed on that. That's a nice picture of George in glory as he is, as he begins to be uh, translated into that realm reserved for the saints who died in glory. Here's, uh, it's hard, I don't have the chops to date icons or anything so I have no idea and, and I, I hate this that I can't date this it looks old it could have been painted in 1935 but there's a picture you know, I looked I looked guys I looked so that's George before uh, Diocletian 
already the costume has changed a little bit, so you can see it's coming a little later. So we don't want to see this again. We're going to look at some slides. Actually, there he is. So there's the bigger picture of him. He's a soldier. He's got a spear. He's got a shield. Now, as this journey works its way west, and here's the question we can't answer. We don't know why, and I better hurry up with this thing, but I will. Um, we don't know. I mean, we, we really do not know why he didn't just stay a local saint, because most saints stayed local at a time when, yes, you had the Roman infrastructure, and yes, people wrote, and people circulated written documents. It was a rare saint that managed to get out of his or her hometown, especially one of whom we know very little. George did. George went everywhere. George went north to Georgia, and what he acquired there was a dragon. And the story of George began to get more complicated. Actually, there were two streams of stories about George, a Latin one and a Greek one. First of all, he didn't just die, but he suffered something like 20 tortures before he died. And in suffering torture, he brought 40,000 people to faith. Then he got the empress to also come to faith, and she likewise was beheaded for her faith. So that's good stuff. He also acquires this dragon. Now, dragons are hard to prove historically, they're irresistible, mystically. And if you translate the dragon into something real in your life, Jung would say it's your mother-in-law or your mother, uh, and you're trying to wrestle your wife out of the grip of her mother so that you can actually have a relationship with her. Something to think about. I'm not going to go there today. Um, the dragon uh, is something to be thought of. There, in fact... The perfect account of St. George and the dragon is a story we may get to, which is the, the little fable of Hansel and Gretel, in which a stepmother sends her children into the forest, her non-children, to certain death, only to reappear as a witch who devours children. And the spell is somehow uh, vanquished from this witch by the faithfulness of these two children who invoke a series of 14 helper saints to aid them, one of whom is St. George. We'll get to that. So here's George, you know, first millennium. This thing keeps on going through the Middle Ages. At some point, actually I can tell you exactly when, he gets this red cross during the time of the First Crusade in the 12th century. During this time, the European nations are increasingly at war, at odds with one another. And interestingly... That war brings them all the way back to where George started. They come back to the Holy Land to get rid of Islamic presence there, and to liberate it once again for Christendom. We have different points of view about that today, but that was the project they were on. And during that project, which began about 1096 and went on for centuries, they Visitors, many of whom were kings uh, and knights, aristocratic people. This was the great pilgrimage, if you like, to go and liberate uh, the Holy Land, encountered the story of George still going strong. So they began to bring it back. When they brought it back, they discovered that they could use the story of a powerful soldier saint who was ready to come to the aid in battle, as they did when they tested it and tried it. They invoked his aid and saw who won the battle, and they seemed to have a habit of winning battles. So they said, let's see if we can try this out, dealing with those nasty French. 
which is what the English had on their agenda once their crusades were done. So that became their task. The French, in the meantime, had a patron saint, Saint-Denis, who, what happened to him? He was uh, working as a pagan, I believe, in the Roman Empire. I believe as a soldier. I believe he said, no, I will not say yes to the emperor. And he was beheaded in the middle of the third century. So they got Saint-Denis. The English are still looking. So St. George makes his way back. As he goes back, all of these areas with a cross either become consecrated to St. George as nations. Around this period, 1,000 to 1,400, 900 maybe, or they have cities that are consecrated to him. Um, and they're not nations at that point. They're, they're kingdoms, you know, but they, they begin more and more to find him irresistible. So we're now... In the UK, looking at Windsor Castle as it looks now, many of you have looked at Windsor Castle lately as we've had a lot of activity there, and we're going to plow through. This is how it looked around the year 1200, I think. There was a little chapel there dedicated by Henry III to the great English saints, who were saint kings. They could have started with Alban, who was an English, a soldier in England, a Roman soldier, who refused to give the pinch to the emperor and was killed. But there was no dragon with Alban, so they kind of looked over him. They were dealing with Edmund, uh, the, Edmund and Edward, Edward the Confessor and Edmund the Martyr, who were both 11th century and 9th century English kings. One was a soldier, one was not. They were both saints. For whatever reason, I'm just going to scuttle through this quickly. We don't need to look at these pretty pictures, but this one we can look at. Here we are. Come on. Now, I don't know why it's not. Sorry, guys. It's <laughs> this will be the end of the little of the little display, unless I can figure out why why it won't go forward. Well, this could be very interesting. Uh, just as is it? Oh, that could be. Oh, rats. Okay, that's my fault then. All right. Okay. Well, hopefully they're then all set to that. Okay, guys. Well, we're going to keep talking, and we're just going to take that thing out, and I'm going to pick and choose from the menu at the side. Okay. So there we are, and you can look at the menu too. This is how it looks now, after Henry the Seventh and Eighth had their go at it. This is called Saint George's Chapel, and it's the chapel that was built in that vacant lot next to Henry III's chapel. And it was built by this guy. Let's see if we can run this thing again. St. Edward III. He was very involved in fighting the French, and he had heard enough stories about George, and they had come into great popularity in the centuries before him, that he decided he would make George, his own personal patron saint. He would use George to help him in battle, and he would create a special guild of people who were part of St. George's followers. Uh, called, he called this thing the, the Order of the Garter. Uh, let's see if I can find that. Here's a picture of him encountering St. George with all his accoutrements and it begins to build up this order. Now, the successors of the Order of the Garter are still in business today, and we encounter them a lot, carrying that tradition onward. 
But it's around this time in 1348 that he builds the chapel and creates um, George as the patron saint of England. So people can pray to George for help, which they do in the battles to come. There he is, St. George and St. Denis. So now England is complete. We're going to look at a few slides as we rush through. And we're going to get to the 14 helpers. And then I will let go of this thing very quickly. 14 helpers appear in that part of uh, Germany that I was on the map at Bad Staffelstein, in which uh, a vision appeared to a shepherd uh, of a little child sitting alone in a meadow at night crying for help. The guy ran back to get help. Hermann Leitz was his name. And when he came back, the child was gone. A day later, the child reappeared. This is all in December 24th, rather, December 25th of 1445. June 1446, the child reappears. He's now got a little red cross on his breast. And he says to Hermann, if you will be our servant, me and my 13 friends, we will be yours. So Hermann gets the locals to build a little chapel for him. Miracles start happening and all kinds of cures. And these 14 saints are all saints that are known. There is St. George. There are a bunch of other saints that we all invoke for different needs. They're all there to respond to the needs of everyday life. Europe's been through a few plagues, and these guys will take care of domestic animals. George has added this to his portfolio of cures. They will take care of domestic problems. They'll take care of keeping the, the farm running. These are pictures of some of them on staves, staves. These are the present parish of the church which now exists on the spot where that miracle occurred. And they are carrying these staves. Matthias Grunewald did a painting of these 14 helpers. And that was 1503. This is the church that was built later to house the devotions to these guys. Very impressive church. Basilica of the Fiertzain Heiligen, or 14 saints, completed in 1772. We look inside, and the whole nave includes a, a central, an altar here for the 14, and then a high altar at the end, which is actually an image of the Virgin Mary, who is considered the 15th of the saints. It's probably, I mean, there are not enough superlatives to describe this church. It, it simply is in a class of its own as, as the best example of Rococo. And there it is. But this is the part that's interesting, and then I will maybe leave this thing. Um, there's St. Denis, and there's St. George. Not divided, right? Indifferent of the claims of the nations upon them. Saint Denis and Saint George coexist as helper saints in this vision of the kingdom. They share this kind of vision of a body of workers, for lack of a better word, of helpers who are available in time of need for anyone who calls upon them. This is another church in the same style. 
St. George, St. George. This is the coat of arms of that city, Stoffelstein. There it is again. This is George's. Some pictures of him from various places around the world. And then the typical English, this is German, typical English, this is English, image of what St. George should be like. This is the modern iconography of St. George. I I think this one is my favorite, perhaps. We at least have a dragon to be reckoned with here, looming over him. And here we find the remnants of this whole thing on the coat of arms of the city of London. And the city of London's motto, as you know, is a prayer, Domine Dirigenos, God guide us. There's the cross of St. George, the sword of St. Paul, two dragons. And the only thing I'll say about the English to finish off is the dragons begin to really take over the whole thing, if you like. This is a statue. You see these statues all over London. St. George, rarely. The dragon, all the time. There's something about the dragon that the English absolutely love. And I'll leave it at that. He has become, if you like, by some divine morphing, the familiar spirit, or at least the saint. And what I can deduce has happened, if you like, from all of this, is that the, the worldly strengths and power that George has as a fighter uh, over world wars and all the other troubles that the English have had to endure uh, I guess they've decided that even a saint isn't quite enough. They'll take the dragon, thank you very much. And if they could put the dragon in the saint's armor, we will do very, very well indeed. And if you've got that kind of power going for you, you can understand why even the Church of the Reformation could not totally remove St. George from its register of people that they had to observe. They did it grudgingly, but St. George is in there, if you like, as the shadow of England. And I'll put it that way. I think every country has a shadow. We might be seeing some of ours right now, and it always has to do with power. But the shadow of England is probably that wild beast who can get let loose whenever there's a football match going on locally or across the world and unleash all kinds of uh, mischief or power, directed or undirected, on the world. And I have a feeling that's what's become of St. George. But as we go on, we'll see what has become of our other saints. So before, if you have any questions of that rather long and tedious disquisition, you're entitled to ask them. But <laughs> yes? So is the Republic of Georgia named after George? Apparently. I mean, well, as much as they can tell. With every historical thing in this, it's maybe, maybe, you know, we don't know. But there, there are voices that argue for it. Mark, yeah. How do you contrast the, the saint, going to the saint for a particular meaning with the pagan rituals of you know, offering incense for right. crops to the uh, well? It, it seems very similar. It, 